Tony Curtis was an American actor in the 1950s and 60s. He was well-loved for both dramatic roles and comic performances, such as Some Like It Hot and Spartacus. We're taking you to Las Vegas today to talk about this amazing actor. This is Stone's Bones and Shadows. Files, I'm your host, Lachelle. Today as my co-host, I have one of my best friends and sister, Risa. Hi, Risa. Hey, Shell. How are you doing, sis? So good. We tell each other we're sisters, and then they say, oh, you look alike, but not really because we're not Lachelle really sisters. Has to say, well, she married my brother. <laughs> so we're kind of sisters, but not <sighs> totally. But yeah, so we're always like, this is my sister, and this is my mom, and it and they just look at us like, really? <laughs> and then the last time we said that, the person at the counter at the store said, now explain to us this family. We're like, this is my mom. This is our... Anyway, it was pretty funny. We believe in family. That's the explanation. We are just family. And being one of my family, you get to get drug along onto all my fun adventures and my cemetery wanderings. Which is so fun. I'm glad you like it. <laughs> I took you to a concert. You took me to a cemetery. It's a fair trade. <laughs> it worked out. <laughs> so we were in Vegas for an Andy Grammer concert, which was so fun. And I was like, hey, we have a little time. I haven't been to this cemetery. And there's someone here that I want to go visit. I wanted to see the grave of Tony Curtis, actor... Really funny, but also has some really dramatic movies. Several of his movies are just up there as some of my favorites. And so just thought that would be so cool to go to his grave. He's buried in southeast Las Vegas, Nevada, in the Palm Eastern Mortuary and Cemetery. It opened in 1972. And there are quite a few different kinds of spaces, little gardens, traditional burials, mausoleum, and niches for cremated remains. They have a chapel. What did you think of the cemetery, Risa? Oh, I thought it was pretty. It was a beautiful day. And it's always, we're walking around and just, you know, you're looking at things, you're thinking about things. We came across somebody who was getting ready to have their interment, part of their mm -hmm. ceremony. And it just kind of was like, oh yeah, it's a cemetery. <laughs> These right. people are gathering. We're, we're kind of coming to, to celebrate and to enjoy. And, right. and they were coming for, you know, mourning and, mourning and sorrow saying goodbye. And, yeah. and to be with their family. And it was just kind of one of those interesting things to see. We're like, oh, like our, not that we're not respectful in the cemetery. For sure. But we're kind of tourists. We're seeing things and mm -hmm. enjoying the atmosphere and kind of for our own enjoyment. And so we tried to give them the, their space to, to mourn and just kind of reflect on the sacred nature of the place that we were enjoying the beauty of. I was walking ahead and I turned around and I'm like, Psh, hey, <laughs> guys, look there, over here. There's people. <laughs> there's live people here. Yeah. But I really like the different spaces in sort of the center of the cemetery. They had like, it was like a little garden, like it had walls and a mm -hmm. gate. And I was like, that's interesting. Like mm -hmm. you have your own little design space. Yeah, your above own the ground. little garden walled with a little gate. I liked those too. Yeah. I that thought I could get into that, having my own little family garden with... There were a couple of empty ones. I was like, how about that one? It's kind of by the lake. <laughs> yeah, they did have some really cool... I guess um, it was a pond. Yeah, there's a couple ponds, fountains. There was quite a few Canadian geese that were hanging out there. They were just kind of everywhere and honking and talking to each other. And it's kind of interesting... The cemetery is over 40 acres, so as far as cemeteries go, it was pretty big, but now that I've been to ones that are like over 100 acres, it didn't seem like it was quite so big. 
Tony Curtis was born actually Bernard Schwartz in 1925, and he was the son of Hungarian Jews who immigrated to the United States after World War I. His father, Manny Schwartz, yearned to be an actor, but work was really hard to find. He had such a heavy accent. And instead, he became a tailor and relocated the family repeatedly as he sought work. Curtis recalled in 1959, quote, I was always the new kid on the block, so I got beat up by the other kids. Aww. I had to figure a way to avoid getting my nose broken, so I became the crazy new kid on the block, unquote. <laughs> Curtis also suffered a tragedy in his younger years at the age of 12 when his younger brother was killed in a traffic accident. He found refuge in movies. He would actually ditch school to catch matinees starring Errol Flynn, Clark Gable, Gary Cooper, and other screen idols. So it kind of sounds like it was an escape, you know, and he got that escape through other actors. So that is interesting to me. And understanding, like, maybe that was his what he wanted to do for other people was to give them an escape and yeah. somewhere to, you know, kind of heal and have take a break from the life that they were living. He had a troubled home life and at one point even became a member of a notorious street gang. Uh-oh. Yeah. Well, it was either acting or street gangs. He had to <laughs> pick one. <laughs> the dance fight. Maybe it was more like that kind of street gang. Okay, so I think he started to turn things around when he served in the U.S. Navy during World War II after he enrolled in a drama school on the GI Bill and did some theater work. When Agent lined up an audition with Universal where he signed a seven-year contract starting at $100 a week at age 23, which I guess was a lot for then. Does that sound like right. a lot? I don't know. For like 100 bucks, you mean like an hour? No, or for the whole week. Like, um, 10 minutes? The whole, oh, Okay. The studio gave him the name Anthony Curtis, taken from his favorite novel and the anglicized name of his favorite uncle. He later shortened it to Tony Curtis. The first starring role was in a swashbuckler called The Prince Who Was a Thief in 1951. It was Tony Curtis's first film as a star. In this film, based on Theodore Dresser's short story, the handsome rogue Jolna, Tony Curtis, lives the life of a skilled thief in the Middle East, thanks to his kind-hearted adopted father, Yusuf. But Jolna was born for a grander destiny as the next heir to the Sultan's throne. Discovering his true lineage, Jolna boldly starts a revolt against the treacherous Mustafa with the help of the beautiful and spectacularly limber contortionist, Tina, who is Piper Laurie. I just love the descriptions of these old movies, don't you? <laughs> yes. They have such, like, vim and vigor in them. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. He earned acclaim for his performances in George Marshall's Houdini in 1953, and he plays Harry Houdini with his future wife in the movie, Janet Leigh. Carol Reed's Trapeze was in 1956 as an Italian aerialist, and Sweet Smell of Success was in 1957 as an unprincipled press agent. In his next movie, The Defiant Ones, in 1958, it was set in the racially segregated South, and his portrayal of an escaped white prisoner who was chained to an African-American convict who was played by Sidney Poitier earned Curtis his only Academy Award nomination. The Defiant Ones is an American dramatic film that was considered provocative at the time because of its focus on racism and its call for racial harmony. So in the movie, in the racially segregated South, two convicts, John, or Joker Jackson, played by Tony Curtis, and Noah Cullen, played by the amazing Sidney Poitier, are chained together. After their prison truck crashes, the two men escape. As they desperately try to evade the police, they have to get over their prejudices of each other. The concept of two chained together escaped convicts who hate each other was not totally unique, but there was an added twist that the convicts 
were of different races in a setting where segregation was still very much prevalent. And so they start out actually fighting each other. And before the truck crashes, they're literally about to duke it out. And that's kind of what makes the truck crash. But by the end of the movie, they're helping each other out of friendship and respect for one another. The film's message was obvious that all people must learn to cooperate if they want to survive. The Defiant Ones was the first of producer and director Stanley Kramer's message pictures, as they're called, which included acclaimed films Judgment at Nuremberg and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, also starring Sidney Poitier. That is awesome. I think also when you see that story in you know, played out obviously in theatrical and dramatic way in a crash and convicts. Mm -hmm. But it really does bring home the lesson that we can all learn that like, if you really knew the person next to you, mm -hmm. you wouldn't have the prejudice that you would have. You'd see them as the person and we'd know that we all need each other to get together mm -hmm. and make successful. To get by yeah. and to survive. This next one's my favorite Tony Curtis film in which he becomes better known, and it was in, I think, 1959 in Billy Wilder's screwball comedy, Some Like It Hot. He and Jack Lemon are musicians that witness a murder and are trying to escape the mob. <laughs> they are seen as they run off and have to get out of town. They disguise themselves as women in a band whose lead singer is Sugar Kane, played by Marilyn Monroe. Sugar Kane, you hey. see what they did there. <laughs> Who totally fails to notice that they are men in drag. Joey and Jerry <laughs> Curtis and Lemon dress as women and call themselves Josephine and Daphne. They join Sweet Sue and her society syncopators, an all-female band headed by train to Miami. <laughs> so here these two knuckleheads are dressed up as women. And of course, nobody acts like they are any the wiser the whole time, although they really don't look that much like women. It wasn't very convincing. It wasn't I don't know. Totally, I guess it's you believe what people funny. tell you to believe. Exactly. <laughs> and so Joe and Jerry, they become obsessed with sugar, of course. I mean, Marilyn Monroe. Right. And at first, they're competing for her affection while trying to maintain their disguises as women. And Sugar confides to Josephine that she has sworn off male saxophone players who have taken advantage of her in the past. And he is a male saxophone player pretending to be a female saxophone player. And she just really hopes that she can someday find a gentle, bespeckled millionaire while in Florida. That is the dream. That is the that dream. Is dream. Every time I see a gentle, bespeckled millionaire, I think, <laughs> if there's <only>. the guy. <laughs> well, my guy we did, is bespeckled. Basically. And yours yeah. kind of is too. I have so a bespeckled there guy. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and they're better than billionaires, really. They really are. <laughs> they're worth a billion. So during the forbidden drinking and partying on the train, Josephine and Daphne become really close friends with Sugar and they struggle to remember that they're supposed to be acting like girls and can't make passes at her. And it's just so hysterical to watch them make passes at Sugar constantly and Sugar just doesn't get it. Like she's just like, oh, these girls my are new so best nice. Friends. They are so great. <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's just so funny. Anyways, once they get to Miami, Joe woos Sugar by assuming a second disguise. He had to do something. As luck would have it, for Sugar, her bespeckled millionaire appears. <laughs> dun, dun, Isn't that dun. crazy? You tell your bestie about it on the train, and then boop doo He's probably my thinking, bespeckled millionaire. He's probably thinking, there's no way. There's no way we're going to run into one of those guys. <laughs> so he becomes one of those guys. <laughs> so they find the bespeckled millionaire who appears in Junior, the heir to Shell Oil. While feigning indifference to her, an actual millionaire, the aging mama's boy, Osgood Felding III. <laughs> that is a name. Osgood Felding Hello, III. my name is Osgood Felding III. <laughs> At your service. And he persistently pursues Daphne Lemon, whose refusal only increases his appetite. He invites her for a champagne supper on his yacht. Joe convinces Jerry to keep Osgood occupied on shore so that Junior can take Sugar to Osgood's yacht. It sounds very complicated. <laughs> and he wants to pass the yacht off as his own. This could not go wrong. It's like taking two girls to prom. I mean, you just see exactly. it and you think, yeah, that's going to work, man. 
So as the millionaire leaves the boat, then he's like, oh, welcome to my boat. Yeah. So then he brings Marilyn Monroe, Sugar, out to the boat and they're there. So he's like, his buddy, quote, Daphne is keeping the millionaire busy dancing the night away. (laughs) So then he tells Sugar in so many words that psychological trauma has left him impotent so that he would marry anyone who could cure him. Oh, well, this is like the Florence Nightingale part. (laughs) And Sugar has been talking about how all these men are always making passes at her and it's just so annoying and she can't stand it. And then here's this guy that's just like, eh, yeah, women's wiles, they don't work on me. Nothing works on me. Psychological trauma and all. She's like, are you kidding? Well, let me let me give it a try. And he's like, oh, if you want. It's no use. And she proceeds to kiss him and kiss him and kiss him and kiss him. She's like, how about that? And he's like, yeah, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and this goes on and on. It's like a double dog dare you, basically. It, kind of, yeah. And, of course, meanwhile, Daphne and Osgood III are dancing the tango until dawn. And when Joe and Jerry finally get back to the hotel, Jerry then announces that Osgood has proposed marriage to Daphne and that he, as Daphne, has accepted. Of course. What a bespeckled millionaire. (laughs) And he's anticipating an instant divorce and a huge cash settlement when his ruse is revealed. So Joe convinces Jerry that He can't actually marry Osgood. Oh, gosh. It gets twistier and twistier. And in the meantime... The hotel hosts a conference for Friends of the Italian Opera, which is really, in fact, a major meeting of the National Crime Syndicate, (laughs) presided over by Little Bonaparte. And Spatz and his gang, these are the guys that they were running from. In the first place. Mm-hmm. Right. So they all, of course, they all end up at the same hotel, because why not? Because it's mean, a comedy. It is a comedy. So what are the odds, right? All of the odds. <laughs> so little the Spats and his gang recognize Joe and Jerry as the witnesses they've been looking for right away. They see through their disguises, I guess. <laughs> and Joe and Jerry, fearing for their lives, realize that they have got to skedaddle. and quit the band and leave the hotel. Joe conceals his deception from Sugar by telling her over the telephone that he, Junior, must marry a woman. Junior, the millionaire. Millionaire. Sorry, I I gotta go. So he dresses up as Junior to tell her that he must marry the woman of his father's choosing and move to Venezuela for financial reasons. Sugar, of course, is distressed and heartbroken, and Joe and Jerry evade Spat's men by hiding under the table at the syndicate banquet. (laughs) So Little Bonaparte has Spat's and his men killed at the banquet. And again, Joe and Jerry are witnesses, and they flee (laughs) through the hotel. They're like, not again. (laughs) They're hiding under the table through the whole thing. So Joe dresses Josephine, sees Sugar on stage singing a lament to lost love, and he runs into the platform and kisses her, causing Sugar to realize that Josephine <laughs> and Junior are the same person. It's just so hilarious. Oh, so gosh. Here comes Josephine, you know, running and kisses like, her on I've the lips. I've kissed those lips before. <laughs> She's like, and she makes a big face like, oh. Oh. <laughs> Jerry in the meantime, persuades Osgood to take Daphne and Josephine away on his yacht. And of course, at this point, they're still, they're all in drag and Sugar runs from the stage and just goes running after her man and jumps aboard the boat just as it launches. So they're speeding away on this boat with Joe, Jerry, Osgood, and Sugar, and Joe confesses his deception to Sugar and tells her that he's not good enough for her, but Sugar wants him anyway, of course. Of course. Meanwhile, I mean, never mind that um, he's lied, deceived, like all the other saxophone players she has ever <laughs> dated, but this is the, just a this Tuesday is the one. for a saxophone player. <laughs> Meanwhile, Jerry tries to get out of his promise to marry Osgood by listing all these reasons why Daphne and Osgood can't get married, raising from, I smoke. And he just keeps going, that's okay. He says, I can't have children. And he says, I don't care. And exasperated, Jerry finally removes his wig and snaps, I'm a man. And Osgood unfazed replied, well, 
nobody's perfect. And Jerry, nonplussed, tries to digest this with a hilarious look. Some nowadays may feel this movie is insensitive to some gender topics, but if you really just take it in a good old fun movie of just mistaken identity and just, it's just so funny. It has hilarious scenes and of course, classic Marilyn Monroe music and beauty and Wow, the costumes she wears in it are pretty racy. <laughs> we were surprised it's such an old movie that there was quite a bit show in there. Well, it's show business, right? It is show you get, you get a pass. business. Curtis was a genius in comedic work, and his roles were primarily in comedy, such as films Operation Petticoat, The Great Imposter, and Sex and the Single Girl. Is that kind of like Sex in the City in the 1960s? <laughs> exactly. exactly. And that was in 1964, but was interspersed with more serious roles, such as A Former Slave in Spartacus. Which is another favorite movie of mine. I am Spartacus! I am Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! Well, if we're all Spartacus. We're, we're Spartacus. Then nobody's Spartacus. <laughs> I think is the way that goes. <laughs> you'll only get to you'll only get that if you've seen the movie, and if you haven't, do it. It has Kirk Douglas, Tony Curtis, Lawrence Olivier, and Gene Simmons, and still has a rating of ninety three percent on the Tomato Meter score. It's a classic. It's so good. I think we got extra credit for watching it in school. Probably. <laughs> it is over three hours long, but it's one of those old epic Hollywood films like Ben-Hur, just cast of thousands. Ah, oh, such a good movie. Epic movie. Epic old Hollywood film. In it, Kirk Douglas plays a slave, Spartacus, who was born and raised a slave and is sold to a gladiator trainer. Tony Curtis plays another of the slaves there, kind of like Douglas's sidekick guy. After weeks of being trained to kill for the arena, Spartacus turns on his owners and leads the other slaves in rebellion. As the rebels move from town to town, their numbers grow and grow as other escaped slaves join their ranks. Under the leadership of Spartacus, they make their way to southern Italy, where they will cross the sea and return to their homes. It is such a great movie, and Tony Curtis shows what a great and versatile actor he is in these really different and varying roles. Now, we've talked about his movies, but we haven't talked much about his personal life yet. Right. Curtis made several films with his first wife, Janet Leigh, including The Houdini and The Perfect Furlough in 1958, and Who Was That Lady in 1960. That who, lady was his wife. Who That's was it. that lady? <laughs> I guess. <laughs> that lady apparently was his wife. Janet Lee was the bigger star when she met Tony. He was still kind of up and coming. Her face was exquisite, Tony says in his autobiography. She had an incredible figure and there was a sweetness about her that I found most appealing. It just devastated me to look at this woman, unquote. Wow, I'm sure nobody's ever been devastated by looking at me, I think. That was kind of the dream, though, you know, that your husband would walk in and be so devastated by your beauty. <laughs> but, like, it's not really practical in everyday life. That's true. Maybe if we can just devastate him once in a while. Yeah. Let's try that. Let's try that. <laughs> he probably would just take a nap. He'd be so devastated. And we'd be like, dang it, we wanted to go out to dinner. <laughs> but I wanted you to be devastated in public. And then Janet says in her book, At one point, I was introduced to a devastatingly handsome young man, beautiful really, with black unruly hair, large sensitive eyes fringed by long dark eyelashes, a full sensuous mouth, and an irresistible personality. <laughs> they exchanged numbers and Tony soon called Janet to test her. He was known for his Cary Grant impression and put on his Cary Grant voice. I don't know how to do that. Cary, <laughs> Cary Grant voice. <laughs> and asked her out. But Janet caught on and said she already had a date with Tony Curtis. Smart girl. <laughs> that is so fun. It just sounds so Hollywood and so romantic. Janet and Tony soon became inseparable. In 1951, Tony felt pressured by his studio to marry his co-star, Piper Laurie, for publicity. What? What? I mean, this happened right, but 
goodness, like, oh, just marry this person because it'll be really good for our movies. I wonder how many times that actually worked. I don't know. Well, because you realize, I mean, they realize, of course, that they're like trying to appeal to the audience and the audience loves like a real love story. Right. And they wanted to carry over past the screen, I guess. I don't know. It's so true. Not worth it. But Janet was signed to a different studio and her bosses did not like that. I guess Mm -hmm. they wanted to keep it in the house. Mm-hmm. According to Tony, this made him realize that he truly wanted to marry Janet. So that mm-hmm. was more of like a, you know, Romeo and Juliet scenario. Exactly. Like different theater houses. <laughs> That's a story everybody can get behind. While he was in the middle of a promotion tour is when he called her and proposed. She excitedly accepted, and both of their studios tried to dissuade them. Boo. Yeah. But on June 4th, 1951, the pair were married in a small ceremony with comedian Jerry Lewis as their witness. <laughs> there you go. That's my favorite thing of all in the whole story. <laughs> it had to happen. To Jerry Lewis said. Man. Come on. Oh, the pair moved into the same apartment building as Elizabeth Taylor and started their life as Hollywood's golden couple. The studios may not have been happy, but as we just said, the fans were. We want the real romance. And it was a great move for Tony's career, which just exploded after their wedding. Everyone wanted to see the Hollywood couple. And of course, they were just perfect. Hollywood loves publicity. And the pair was cast together in the films Houdini in 1953 and in the Black Shield of Falworth in 1954. They're going to try to get as much mileage as they can. I haven't seen the Black Shield of Falworth. We need to find that. Unfortunately, as the years went by, their marriage started to slowly fall apart. Janet seemed to be annoyed at Tony's lack of etiquette at parties and events, and Tony felt that Janet was always correcting him in his manners. Tony was jealous and would always suspect Janet of affairs, and I don't know if she ever did or not, but the story is that he started to sleep around with other women, reportedly with actresses like Gloria DeHaven and Natalie Wood. He was also a frequent guest at Hugh Hefner's parties, Uh if you know what that means. And he said, quote, I was 30 years old in my prime and beautiful girls with fantastic figures were constantly throwing themselves at me, unquote. Tony later lamented. In 1956, their daughter Kelly was born and Tony and Janet continued to try and make the marriage work, but their careers got in the way too. While Tony was a little jealous of the good roles Janet was getting, Janet felt that Tony was changing as he became more famous. Their growing fame kind of made Janet uncomfortable, but Tony was thriving on it. Aside from that, Tony had been heavily impacted by the death of his father and was reportedly already dabbling in drugs. Janet felt that he was not the man she had married anymore. They starred in more films together, like The Vikings in 1958, but the damage had been done. And in 1958, their second daughter actress, Jamie Lee Curtis, was born. She later called herself a, quote, save the marriage baby, saying that, well, she failed. Yeah, I heard a comedian once say that save the marriage babies are just normal babies. So I don't know if anybody's ever tried to do that, but most (laughs) of the time we get normal babies. Yeah, (laughs) it's not a good plan. (laughs) But after their 11-year marriage in 1962, Janet got word that Tony had filed for divorce, which is tragic. Mm. Tony believed that Janet may have been having an affair with her co-star at the time, Frank Sinatra. But that was not the reason he filed for divorce. The reason was he had fallen for a 17-year-old German actress named Christine Kaufman. Janet was devastated and felt humiliated. The divorce was settled in Mexico to get it over with so quickly. It's sad. It's a sad part of the story. It is sad. Tony then marries his girlfriend, Christine, the year after. And together the two had two daughters. But their marriage didn't last forever either. They divorced in 1968. He would then go on to marry four more times. And he had two sons. Wow. Tony struggles with addiction, and he went to rehab in the 1980s. He ultimately found love with his last wife, Jill, when they met in 1993. 
And it seems that his relationships with his children were pretty complicated. Some of them commented that Tony was never really interested in being a father much and that he would never open up to them. And after her parents' divorce, Jamie said that there was a lot of hate between her parents. That makes it really hard, especially for the children in the middle. Oh, so hard. According to Tony, though, quote, he said, I was very dedicated and devoted to Janet and on top of my trade. But in her eyes, that goldenness started to wear off. I realized that whatever I was, I wasn't enough for Janet, and that hurt me a lot and broke my heart. Well, do you think since he didn't win the Academy Award, that golden, you know, he didn't have that golden sheen? Like he wasn't as a rising star as as she had hoped? (laughs) I'm just joking, but... I don't think there's a Save the Marriage Golden Globe award award. either. I think they're just regular awards. What do they call the... What's the golden guy that... That's the Oscar guy. Oh, the Oscar guy. Isn't he the one that's all gold? The Oscar. Either way, they're just regular Oscars. They're not (laughs) Save the Marriage Oscars or whatever else they are. Exactly. But while Janet put things differently with class, I think, in her quote, she said, Tony and I had wonderful time together. It was an exciting, glamorous period in Hollywood. A lot of great things happened. Most of all, our two beautiful children. See, I think that was kind of a classy way to put it. Yeah. Either way, there's just pain and sadness in it yeah ex-wives could say lots of nasty things but it's just classier if you don't that's true for ex-husbands though too well it's just classier (laughs) (laughs) that's a a gender neutral (laughs) (laughs) and of course like i said one of their two daughters jamie lee curtis became a very successful actress i love her as an actress as well Tony had reoccurring roles in the British television series The Persuaders from 1971 to 1972 and in the American TV series Vegas that was from 1978 through 81. He continued to perform on stage and in films into the 21st century. So I wonder if that's when he got to love Vegas. Probably, which is why he got buried there, right? Mm-hmm. Curtis earned an Emmy nomination in 1980 as producer David O. Selznick in Gone with the Wind Chronicle the Scarlet O'Hara War. He also turned to writing with his 1977 novel Kid Cody and Julie Sparrow and in 1993 Tony Curtis The Autobiography. Curtis remained vigorous following his heart bypass surgery in 1994, although his health declined in the next 10 years. Hollywood legend Tony Curtis passed away in 2010. According to Daily Mail, the beloved actor's funeral was pretty amazing with heartfelt speeches from friends and family, including his daughter, Jamie Lee Curtis, and other notables like Arnold Schwarzenegger, and even a mourner dressed like his Some Like It Hot co-star and alleged paramour, Marilyn Monroe. But it's the items that Curtis was buried with that gives us a little more insight into what his loves were and what he enjoyed doing. So first thing to know, this was one packed coffin. Let's just start with what he was wearing when he was interred. Supposedly some of his favorite clothing, which was white shorts and a favorite much mended white sweater, an Armani scarf with a worn Stetson hat placed under his arm. His wife, Jill, shared a list of the items during the eulogy she gave at the funeral, saying of Tony that, quote, the charming, handsome man you fell in love with on the screen was the real Tony, unquote. And it seems that the real Tony was pretty sentimental. He was buried with a travel bag. You know your travel bag, Reese? You can take it with you. (laughs) (laughs) We always say, like, you can't take it with you, but apparently you can at least take it to the grave. Inside his travel bag were medals he had won while in the Navy, family photos, his grandson's baby shoes, and a yarmulke. And then some really unexpected things, a model Trans Am, driving gloves, sketch pads, paints, and paintbrushes, sunglasses, and the cremains of his dog. Okay, so he was like... Packed and ready to go. He had stuff to do on the way. He was ready to go. Like pharaohs of old, they needed all their stuff. He might need to do some art. When he's there. 
I can totally get behind this. It's like he brought a carry-on, but it was like a carry-onward into the future. <laughs> can I take my art supplies to heaven, please? <laughs> Hopefully our heaven will just be so full of art, you won't have any need, I guess. I don't know. And there's totally more. Like, there was more, I guess there's more room. Including, he had some stones he collected while traveling, several watches, a tablet of... Because time. A what? Yeah. You're going to need to know what time it is in heaven? Hopefully <laughs> two, not. Two times. Just in case your friend needs a watch. I, I plan on never having to be late in heaven, personally. We don't want to know what time it is. Isn't that the point of heaven? Is that it's timeless and you don't ever even have to worry about what time it is? But... It's just like his classic jewelry piece, probably. Oh, maybe that's right. It's sentimental. A tablet of Percocet? <laughs> One tablet of Percocet. It's so like painkiller. Did he just love Percocet? I hate that stuff. Why would you Why would you send someone away into the afterlife with a tablet of Percocet? Maybe he thought the transition would be difficult. <laughs> and when he got there, like surgery, right? Like It's like a transition. It's transformative. You need... Some meds Did he have, have a you? water bottle? I guess you just stick it under his tongue. Like, I don't, I don't know. know. Okay. I could tell, like, what he thinks is going to happen by what he's taking in his carry-on. <laughs> or what others thought was going to happen. What I want to know is, did he pack his own carry-on, or did his family pack for him? You I know? feel like he was pretty prepared for this yeah. death here. I feel like he must have, like, had You know, because sometimes your wife packs for you, and it's, like, not exactly what you would pack for yourself. I do not pack for my husband. I bring the wrong t-shirt. He says two t-shirts, but not that one. <laughs> and I said, okay, you're on your own, man. So and he's going to have to pack his own bag Garen's, for heaven. Garen's packing for himself. Yeah, because I'm not going to spend the rest of forever going like, why didn't you bring my other t-shirt? He can have nope. a little model of his favorite car. I don't even know what he would take with him. <laughs> I'm going to have to ask him that. What's well, a question, What's right? What's in your like, bag? What is in your carry onward? If you could heaven. take one bag of stuff with you to heaven, heaven, what would you bring? That you thought you would need? I'd bring a swimsuit. <laughs> like, that's what I want to do. I would bring a swimsuit and a hammock. <laughs> so I take it that your heaven is kind of like Meredith on Grey's Anatomy, and you just plan on hanging at the beach. Well, Yeah. Right? I mean, it's like in heaven, you get an island, you get an island, you get it, everyone gets their own island. Like, that's heaven, right? I know it says mansions in heaven, but my mansion is on an island. It's on an island by itself. (laughs) Not really by itself, like with boats that all your family can come visit. Right. Or they wouldn't even need boats because we can all walk on water, right? You just beam yourself there. Beam yourself there. there. Yeah, there's no traveling. In heaven, there's no airplanes. You just. You're there. Boom. Everything bad like about it. traveling, no. It's gone. It's gone. All right, we digress. So a tablet of Percocet. Okay, tablet of Percocet. Let's not forget that. A DVD of clips from his favorite movie, but no DVD player. I don't know. Maybe there's a <laughs> heavenly one. An eye mask for sleeping and his iPhone, which he reportedly calls his IV. <laughs> <laughs> He's got to bring his IV. Is he hooked up to it at all times? I guess. And seven packets of Splenda. Oh, dear. There you go. That's where I draw the line. That's not heaven. In heaven, heaven, everyone eats sugar and gluten. Like I'm eating donuts, rolls. Oh, yeah. I'm eating all the breads. You know, I'm going to eat. I'm going to eat that thing I had in Barcelona every day. You're like a croissant donut creme brulee dessert. I'm having that, too. I'll have one of those, please. I'll have one of those every day. My joke is that in heaven, I want to open a bakery. That's a good. That's a good heavenly gift. I mean. My audience probably doesn't mostly know. I have celiac disease, so I cannot eat anything with wheat. And it's a real pain. Yeah. I don't like it that much. And it's real sad. It is pretty sad. So anyway, that's my joke. Opening opening a bakery in heaven. I want all the baked goods. (laughs) (laughs) Heavenly goods. That's what we'll call it. I want heaven to smell like a fresh baked (laughs) cinnamon roll. Cinnamon roll, croissant, creme brulee, donut. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, apparently he liked Splenda Gosh. and put Splenda on everything he ate. I can't even imagine that. So, okay. Also, his favorite novel, last but not least, Anthony Adverse. Is that where he got his name, his favorite novel? Isn't that what it said? Mm-hmm. So, in a CTV news story, it tells more about his famous funeral. 
The 85-year-old Oscar-nominated actor died Wednesday at his home in Henderson, a Las Vegas suburb, after suffering cardiac arrest. More than 400 celebrities, fans, friends, and family members gathered to say goodbye at a public funeral service Monday in Las Vegas honoring Curtis's life. The funeral was followed by the burial and then a reception for 200 invited guests at the Luxor Hotel Casino on the Las Vegas Strip. A montage of Curtis's famous film roles opened the farewell service. It was a service full of tears and laughter. A perfect combination in my book. Yes, I agree. You know, as you think about how you want your funeral to go, you and I have talked about this before. We vacillate between we want full mourning garb in black with Victorian weeping and wailing. And and, a dance uh, party. Somewhere in between there. And a dance party. Or both. Both, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe have a really sad, dark funeral with much partying afterwards. Much dancing. Let there be a complete dancing. rave. And let them eat cake. And let them eat all the gluten. Let them Please eat all serve the all the gluten. I'll be eating gluten because I'll be dead. <laughs> <laughs> was attended by then California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, and the crowd laughed as an animated Curtis appeared in a scene from the television series The Flintstones. You know you've made it if you were on The Flintstones. You know and sparred with actor Kirk Douglas in Spartacus, who was also in attendance at the funeral. Oh, friends and fans lined up outside Palm Mortuary and Cemetery well before the funeral, with more than a dozen photographers and television journalists watching the scene. Inside seven colorful paintings and three black and white drawings by Curtis stood on easels while a photo of the young, dark-haired actor was projected on a screen. The coffin was draped in an American flag. Jamie Lee Curtis and her mother actress, Janet Lee, teared up as she described this man who she said was a little mashagana. I guess it's Yiddish for crazy, but always full of life. <laughs> you, I mean, you might fit that bill just a little bit, too. I, a little bit crazy never hurt anybody, okay? <laughs> but always full of life, Reese. That's right. That's right. All of us got something from him. I, of course, got his desperate need for attention, she joked. (laughs) The father-daughter were estranged for a long period, but eventually reconciled. Curtis took pride in his daughter's on-screen credits and then included Perfect and Halloween and True Lies. Rabbi Mel Hetched called Schwarzenegger to the front of the room for an impromptu farewell. He recalled Curtis as a generous mentor who encouraged his budding Hollywood career. When others told him his foreign accent and name were too much of a handicap, Curtis, whose native Bronx accent initially earned him similar criticism, he could sympathize. Quote, you're going to make it, Schwarzenegger recalled Curtis telling him. Don't pay any attention to those guys. I heard the same thing when I came here, unquote. Schwarzenegger said Curtis refused to feel old. Now this I can relate to. (laughs) I feel like growing up is optional. (laughs) That's right. Curtis's sixth wife, Jill Curtis, eulogized her husband of 12 years. She recalled how he easily dismissed their 45-year age difference when his friends asked if he was worried about keeping up with his younger wife. If she dies, she dies. She said her husband would deadpan in reply. She (laughs) recalls he simply loves Krispy Kreme donuts, Splenda, and white clothes. She urged family and friends to not dwell on his death, but on his extraordinary life. The yarmulke was from a Hungarian synagogue that he helped renovate. Curtis's wife, Jill, then listed all the items in his eulogy that he had packed in his carry-onward bag, (laughs) telling everyone what the things meant to him. So I think that means it was like... Each thing was his... Meant something. Yeah. He kind of had a hand in that, maybe. Yeah. He was, as one fan put it, a -a once-in-a-lifetime man. The rabbi then led the room in a series of Jewish prayers. Quote, he's one of those greats of our culture and our society who you always knew, regardless of what character he was playing, that he was Tony Curtis, unquote. Known for his transformation from a pigeonholed pretty boy in the late 40s and early 50s to a serious actor, Curtis reshaped himself over decades of work made himself almost impossible to typecast. He played so many different kinds of roles. 
This metamorphosis, they called it, was completed in 1957's Sweet Smell of Success, in which he played a sleazy press agent manipulated by a ruthless newspaper columnist. It was Burt Lancaster. In person, Curtis loved giving friends and fans extra touches that made their face-to-face moments more memorable. Longtime friend and pallbearer Gene Kilroy told the Associated Press. He had a certain way of making everyone feel like they were Spartacus, Kilroy said. And like I said, actor Kirk Douglas and singer Phyllis McGuire were among seven honorary pallbearers. As the funeral ended, a second film reel flashed before the crowd. The montage finished with the words, The End, cast on an image of Curtis shaking his head as if he were disputing his own epilogue. Well, because it wasn't the end. He was on to bigger and better things. That's right. He had packed his bag. He was ready. He was gone. Then Inside Edition talked to one of the daughters of Tony Curtis who said she was disinherited from her father's will along with all of his children. So this is kind of the not not so happy part. Yeah. They were all blindsided and it was very painful, said Allegra. I guess he had cut his five children, including movie star Jamie Lee Curtis, out of his will. And Curtis left the bulk of his estate to his widow, Jill, 42 years his junior. But his daughter said, quote, It's written there, but I don't believe that that was his last wishes, said Allegra. I believe he was influenced, and we all know who he was influenced by. Mm-hmm. Allegra says being disinherited by her father she adored was devastating. Yikes. Oh, that's so sad. Devastating. Well, if they had had a good relationship, though, I don't know. That's what we don't know, really, like, at the end, like, what his relationships were like with his kids. But, yeah, kind of sad. Kind of sad. She said, quote, I feel like I didn't have the right to exist, and he loved me very much, and I loved him. That's why I believe it didn't come from him. End quote. Maybe she couldn't believe that it was what he wanted. Because it would, No, that's exactly it. Allegra is Curtis's daughter from his marriage to the actress Christine Kaufman. So that was his second marriage? Mm-hmm. The latest wife, the sixth wife, Jill Curtis, was married to the star for the last 12 years of his life. Which isn't so very long. 70-something, yeah. you know. So adding to Allegra's distress, Jill had auctioned many of Tony Curtis's possessions in Los Angeles. And among these items was Curtis's famous jacket and captain's cap from his film, Some Like It Hot. Which is like probably sentimental to them. I don't know. Very sentimental. And in this Inside Edition interview, Jill, his wife, claimed Tony was very specific in his wishes. And she claimed that Tony informed his children that they were being disinherited. Quote, Tony could have a difficult relationship with his kids. But that was really between them and their dad. It had nothing to do with me, said Jill, unquote. But Allegra says five of Tony's grandkids got a total of just $30,000 each, and Jamie Lee's two children got nothing. Allegra fears that her father's will may sully people's opinion of the great Tony Curtis as a family man. He was a loving, fun father. I think he wanted to make sure we were all taken care of, said Allegra. You know, it's really hard with families and inheritance. And a lot of times when there's step parents, you know, lots of children, it's a different kind of family, right? And so I think that that, with all of that and his advancing age, maybe he knew what he was doing and maybe he didn't. Well, maybe he watched a movie about how money ruins people's lives and he said, not my kids says, or my grandkids. I'm just leaving it to my wife. She's the one that took care of me. That's how I feel about. Have you in seen that movie, years. Knives Out, where the guy, the rich guy, yeah. and his money? I, I was love like, that movie. I am throwing all my money away. I'm not <laughs> going to let it ruin my children. <laughs> Give it to the girl that's taking mm-hmm. care of me at the right? end of my years, and maybe that's just maybe what that's he what did. he was thinking because mm-hmm. money does ruin people sometimes. Maybe Jamie Lee's kids have buckets of money because she's made a zillion movies and. I don't know. The truth of the matter is, though, money is not love, and money is not memories, and money is not an indication of, like, where you stand with someone. And maybe that's Mm -hmm. where Allegra was sad, because she wanted it to be, I don't know, on the record, that she meant Mm -hmm. something to him, and this is the proof, because he gave her the money. Mm -hmm. But, I don't know, maybe he was like, knives out, get rid of the money. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, I don't blame him 
whatever you decided to do. It's your money. Like, spend it, bury it. Oh, I want to die broke. I want to spend every last dime. Right? Because yeah. in my opinion, any money left in the bank is money you didn't go on vacation with. So Amen, it's no sister. good to you. Not my last <laughs> check to bounce. <laughs> Your kids are like, what? They're like, no. Well, because then I will have spent it with them, like spending time with them. So Exactly. They we don't want, mind. We want the memories. We want the money. They want the cruise. To they go want, into the memories. Yeah. That's what I think. Well, anyways, poor guy. Yeah. Well, thanks for teaching well, me about Tony Curtis. Yeah. Because I didn't know. Like, we walked around the, the cemetery, and we saw, you know, and they're like, there it is. And now I know all about him. Yeah. And he was in one of those cute little gardens that had a wall around it and a little gate, and it had grass and some nice little trees Decorations, and vegetation yeah. and stuff around it. And anyway, it was a... It's a nice memorial and it's a really nice cemetery. And yeah, it was, it was fun to go visit. And then I just always really enjoy doing a deep dive into a person. We did that while we were walking around even. We saw like this giant yeah. headstone. I was like, who's That's that true. guy? And so I kind of walked along like Googling. I was like, oh, he donated all somebody's education. Oh, that's great. And then, oh, who's this guy? Oh, he did. You know, so you're just like Googling or even when we saw it was a young, you know, a young grave, and we're like, I wonder how she right. died. It was a sister and a brother, or two sisters and a brother. Right. And we, you know, were able to look at their story and kind of, like, appreciate their lives and their families and right. kind of mourn with them. So, I mean, that's just such an interesting thing to do. And that's why I love my cemeteries. Yep. That's what we do. So, friends and tapophiles, have you thought about how you want to be buried? Have you thought about what you might like in your carry onward bag? If anything, who might inherit the things that you love most? They're questions that we should all think about and make notes about before we're gone. I loved learning about this wonderful actor and learning more about the lives and the rich and famous helped me to realize that those kind of lives seem so full of fortune and good things but they are also so full of hard times and heartache as well. This was Stones, Bones, and Shadows. You can see photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stonesbonesandshadowspodcast.com. Also, don't forget to check us out on Facebook, like us on Instagram, follow us on Twitter, and leave us a comment. We love to hear from our listeners. Thank you.